Let us invoke God's blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we bless thy name that thou hast brought us once again to the ending of another year and the beginning of a new year. We thank thee for all times and seasons, and that, that thou who art beyond all time hast come into time that we might be redeemed. We bless thee for thy presence here in this chapel this day, and we pray that thou wilt make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we do ask of thee, our Father, to aid us to pray with sincerity that common prayer which the Lord Jesus desired his own to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Uh, it's based on an ancient hymn, of course, which is this old psalm, the 90th psalm. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. As we come to prayer, I want to use a prayer of Dr. John Bailey, which is a beautiful examination of our hearts and lives, and I hope you will join in this prayer. Let us all bow in prayer. O everlasting God, let the light of thine eternity now fall upon our passing days. O holy God, let the light of thy perfect righteousness fall upon our sinful ways. O most merciful God, let the light of thy love pierce to the most secret corners of our hearts and overcome the darkness of sin within us. Are we living as our conscience approves? Are we demanding of others a higher standard of conduct than we demand of ourselves? Are we taking a less charitable view of the failings of our neighbors than we do of our own? Are we standing in public for principles which we do not practice in private? Let us answer before thee truthfully, O God. Do we ever allow bodily appetites to take precedence over our spiritual interests? To which do we give the benefit of the doubt when our course is not clear? Do we ever allow the thought of our own gain to take precedence over the interests of the community? To which do we give the benefit of the doubt when our course is not clear? Let our answers before thee be truthful, O God. Are we in our daily life facing the stress of circumstance with manliness and courage? 
Are we grateful for our blessings? Are we allowing our happiness to be too much dependent on money, on business success, or on the good opinion of other people? Is the sympathy we show to others who are in trouble commensurate with the pity we would expend on ourselves if the same thing happened to us? Let our answer before thee be truthful, O God. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. And, Father, from these words of examination before thee, we would also pray for those whom we know who face the coming year with a great need of thy presence, and we seek for them all of the benefits of thy mercy and thy love. And we pray that thou wilt inspire in us such impulses toward generosity and goodness and kindness and concern and care for others that the love of Christ may flow freely through us in the coming days and months ahead. We do pray for our government and for the great problems it faces and for our president and the needs he has for wisdom. We do commend him unto thee. We pray for those who suffer in the conflict in Vietnam and we pray that 1971 may see that war come to a conclusion. We do pray, O God, for peace, but we pray that thou wilt speed that great day when Christ shall come again and all of the kingdoms of this world shall be totally under his sway and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of thee, O Father. In his name we make our prayer. Amen. I want to commend this congregation. You're very versatile. I appreciate your ability to come over here so quickly. I think most of you know what happened. We had scheduled the service today to be over in the assembly inn in the lobby. Usually we have a small crowd on uh, this Sunday after Christmas, but we don't have a small crowd today. Look around. You'd be surprised, sort of like heaven. <laughs> You're surprised who you see there, and people are surprised to see you here. Uh, uh, this is this very fine. What happened over at the end is that the furnace broke down, and it's very cold over there, and so we, I wanted you to have a nice place to sleep, so we moved back over here today. There are two announcements that I want to make. Uh, one is that there will be no prayer meeting this uh, Wednesday afternoon. I have to go out to Oklahoma City with my wife uh, to visit a doctor there, and we'll be gone that uh, day, and then we'll be on back on Friday. Then I want to announce that we will have uh, Holy Communion, the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, next Sunday morning. Normally, we do not have the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the quarter, but we will this time because we will no longer be broadcasting on the first Sunday and it uh, will not interfere with the radio broadcast. So I make this announcement in order that uh, you may prepare suitably to come to the Lord's table next uh, Sunday morning. And now let us continue our worship by singing the beautiful hymn,
How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. The 130th hymn. Our second lesson is taken from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we have the privilege of giving. It makes us better through this act of sacrifice. It releases the hold of this material world upon us and helps us to show love. We pray, therefore, that thou wilt take our gifts and glorify the name of thy dear Son and grant that the Holy Spirit now, may now bless us as we seek from thy word instruction for our lives. In Jesus' name, we dedicate our gifts and ourselves. Amen. Not long ago, I clipped out of a newspaper that I get from Great Britain, a magazine that I get from Great Britain, a funny little story of a little girl who heard the doorbell ring at her home, and so she ran to the door and looked uh, uh, at the door, and there stood a Church of England clergyman with his white collar and his waist stock in front. And so she ran back to the room where her mother was, and she said, Mommy, come to the door. There's a man uh, at our door. And her little sister said, That's no man. That's a minister. <laughs> And, uh, of course, the, the distinctive garb is there. And if you went to see Charles Dickens' uh, uh, little story that has been put into a musical Scrooge, you saw the various uniforms, really, that people wear in Great Britain. A butcher wears a certain type of apron, a certain shirt. Uh, this is true of a, a man who is a clerk. It's true of a clergyman. It's true of a great many of the professions there. The most distinctive garb that a Christian wears is the garb of hope. 
And the one thing that keeps us going most is hope. If we think there is no hope and there is no motive to our existence, then we begin to die away. Now, one of the grandest of all of the Psalms, one which is often used at New Year's Day and also on this last Sunday of an old year, is that Psalm which we read in the responsive reading this morning, the 90th Psalm. It's a Psalm that speaks of time and of eternity. It has in it all that you could see in a wandering people constantly having to pull up their tent stakes, take down the tent, fold it up, and move on. Then they come to another place, they pitch the tent, they put it up, and then the next morning they move on. And so it begins, it's attributed, by the way, to Moses, and it is looked upon as the most ancient of all the Psalms in the whole 150 of the Psalms. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. The word for dwelling place is home. And these were people who were pilgrims and strangers. And their home is in God, he says. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth. He thinks of mountains as the very oldest of created uh, uh, things which he can see. Before the mountains were brought forth. Literally, this means the travail of giving birth. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Now, what I'm trying to show you is that there is a vague hope here that is anchored by this psalmist into God, even though he is frail and he thinks of God's eternity, which is something that helps us to get our lives in proper perspective. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men, a thousand years in thy sight or but is yesterday when it is past and is a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep, and in the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withered. These desert people watching the sun smite the grass would see such things as this happen. And this psalmist in a moment of reflection thinks this is the way it is with man. Of all of the creatures who are born, he is like the grass which comes up so quickly after there has been some rain, and then the hot desert sun smites it, and it withers away. And then he begins to think of this nation of Israel. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we are troubled. Whenever this nation went astray from God's directions, it found itself in great trouble. And so he reflects upon this. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee and our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Nothing can be hidden from God. And this humbles the psalmist. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years, and the King James Version says, as a tale that is told. This is what I wanted to get to. We spend our years as a tale that is told. This is a rather inspired mistranslation. It really means a sigh. But a tale that is told. The psalmist would come to the place at night where the tent would be pitched and a campfire would be built. 
And they had no television, no radio, no entertainers. And do you know how they entertained each other? Sitting around the campfire, someone would say, tell a story. And they would tell a story about what meant the most to them. And do you know God meant the most to the psalmist? And so someone would begin to tell a tale. It would be filled with drama and excitement. And the distraction of that drama for a moment would be a very pleasant and engaging thing. And then the tale would be told. It would come to an end. And so, says the psalmist, life is something like that. Well, a tale has to have an author. The author begins to conceive in his mind what he wishes to convey. And this evolves itself into a plot. The plot thickens into a plan. And then the story reaches its climax. It comes to a point and an ending. And the psalmist says the life of man is like that. It's a little drama that is played out. But God is the one who has written this drama. It does have a beginning. And it does have a purpose. It does have a plot and a plan that unfolds. And then it has a climax. And there is a strange, eerie feeling of comfort that comes to this psalmist in that. The days of our years, he says, are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. You see, he begins to think about time. This morning when I came up here, He was saying on the sign, Happy New Year, and I guess it was Charlie had etched there a figure of Father Time. We think of time sometimes as a father with a long white robe and a great dignified beard and a scythe. And in a sense, time is a father. And then we sometimes think of time as a thief, that time comes and steals away the strength in my muscles. I was thinking this morning how good it was to have my glasses on. I only use them to see with. Uh, <laughs> uh, that I'm getting older and I need glasses. Uh, the time comes and steals away my eyesight as it goes on. I wonder sometimes, as many people do, why the stairs get steeper every year and why the print in the newspaper gets smaller and why the children get noisier. Well, time has a stealing way about him. And he comes to steal things like a thief. And uh, time, someone has compared time like a gypsy that moves on, keeps on moving. Well, what is time? The philosophers can't tell you what time is. Little six-year-old boy, a big first grader at the Black Mountain Primary Elementary School can tell you what time is. He can tell you what time it is. But a philosopher can't tell you what time is. Someone has said that from our view, that is the view of God coming into time as he did when this planet was invaded in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God has entered into time through his Son. He has become a creature of time. How often, if you study the life of the Lord Jesus, you hear him saying at the first miracle that he performed at the, the marriage in Cana of Galilee, you remember? Mary was worried about what they were going to do. They had run out of wine at this feast. And what did Jesus say? 
Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. He had his eye on the clock, and he was thinking about it. You remember when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and went through the bitter agony there for our souls? Do you remember what he said at that time? Father, now is mine hour come. This is the reason I was born. This is the reason that I came into the world. You see, he realized that life not only has, by reason of time, proportion to it. We not only have calendars and clocks and sundials. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart full of wisdom. What is our purpose with this gift of time? Well, time is a trust. My chief end is to glorify God, says our catechism wisely, and to enjoy him forever. And if I allocate my priorities right and I really seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness, then I begin to know what life is all about. Life is a sacred trust. We are not an accident, but we are here to glorify God. I am certain that one of the reasons that so many of our young people have turned to drugs is that they wish to escape time. They are bored with life, bored to tears, because there seems to be no purpose in this trust of life. And so they waste away time often, not knowing what else to do. They drug themselves, anesthetize themselves because life seems to be so painful. But life and time are gifts from God, gifts which we are to use for his glory. I was awakened this morning at about 3 o'clock by a telephone call. My old friend Catherine Bryson died this morning. Catherine Bryson has lived in an iron lung a record-breaking amount of time, about 21 years, I believe. So many people who would visit Catherine Bryson came away cheerful, but always asking the question, why would anyone want to live like that? Imprisoned in an iron lung, struggling away for every breath that she was to breathe, looking into a mirror, watching television through that, conversing with friends who came there. Do you know why she wanted to live? She wanted to live because she knew God and his love. She wanted to live because she had a mother who loved her very much. The only reason in the world you want to wake up tomorrow morning is that someone loves you. And if you can believe that, then time has meaning for you. And she found meaning in that time. I remember once taking Raymond Berry, that great end from the Baltimore Colts, along with Bobby Richardson and Bill Wade, into her home. These splendid athletes, all of them reaching great peaks of perfection as professional athletes. Bill Wade throwing one of the longest passes ever completed in professional football. Raymond Berry holding all the records in the National Football League in pass receiving. Bobby Richardson breaking records in the World Series for the New York Yankees. And these three men, she knew all about them. 
She had watched them on television. She could talk to them about their records and, and statistics that they had achieved. And when we started out of the room, we had had a prayer and read some scripture. Raymond Berry turned back, and he said, Ms. Bryson, I know it's been hard for you all these years, but one day you're going to have a new and a glorious body that will be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye. God came and took Catherine away last night, and she'll have that new and glorious body. But my, how she filled up the minutes of 20-some-odd years in an iron lung in a way that puts most of us to shame when we complain about our work as a housewife, when we complain about the littleness of our responsibility in the place where we serve, or we complain about our little aches and pains. I used to go see Catherine Bryson, not to bring her any cheer, but to get myself cheered up. She always helped me when I went to that place, and I went away feeling good that I had gone there. And so Catherine is gone. But time for her was a trust. Time is also a test. It's a testing. God tested her with time. And she met the test gloriously because of her faith in Jesus Christ and the love that God had surrounded her with. Time is also a test. Trist. It says in the dictionary that it's archaic, and that again makes me feel old. Uh, trist is not really an archaic word. It's an old word that means, uh, of course, an appointment of two people to meet together. And time is an appointment for us to meet with God. We have that allotted to us. This is what it's meant to teach us. We have a sacred opportunity in time to meet with eternity and God. Henry Drummond has a famous story. He tells about a group of men who had gotten into a small boat and they had a wreck out at sea. They were drifting aimlessly. And one dark night after they had run out of food and water and they faced starvation and death from thirst, they saw in the blackness of a night the light on the mast of a steamer, a ship, coming nearby. They were hilarious. They were so excited. And they wondered if there was any type of light inside the cabin of their little boat. And they rummaged through all of the lockers, and finally they found an old lamp. And they wondered if a candle would be in the lamp. And they hurriedly opened it and they looked inside and there was the stub of a little candle. And then someone said, do we have a match? And so they rummaged through all of their pockets and they searched the lining and folds of their garments. And finally they found just one match. And they realized that everything depended upon the striking of this match and lighting that candle. And so when they realized this responsibility, they cast lots, and the lot fell on the youngest member of the group to strike the match. And he took the match with trembling hands, 
and he steadied himself, and he struck it, and it flickered, and he cupped his hand about it to let it get going. And then as the fire began to burn, he thrust it inside and managed to light the stub of the candle. And they got the door to the lantern closed. They came outside and tied it to an oar and held the boat oar high up into the air. And the passing steamer had a watchman who saw that little light and stopped. And they put down a boat and they rescued these men who had been stranded at sea. Well, says Henry Drummond, your life is like that. There is passing by you this glorious opportunity to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and to have purpose and meaning through this journey of life. You can strike it and light that candle and hold it aloft to God and he stops and takes you on board. Time is a tryst, an appointment. These are some of the things that the psalmist wishes to remind us of about time. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Are we doing that with the days that go by? Are we seeking to fill up these minutes, these days, the weeks, and the months, and the years that will soon be gone and life will be over and finished? Are we filling them with a purpose that is in alignment with God's will? What are we doing with this precious gift, this great responsibility, this appointment? What are we doing with it? Let me tell you about one of the things that cripples us the most. It's the thought of past failures. But one of the glorious things about God's gift of love is that he helps us to forget. I read to you a lesson from the New Testament. From Paul's letter to a church in Philippi. A letter that this old soldier of Christ had written from a prison in Rome. And some Bible scholar has pointed out that letters of people during this period who were put into prison were often filled with bitterness and cynicism and vengeance and hate toward their enemies. But when you read this letter which Paul wrote from prison in Rome, it glows with a mellowness and a love, and a serenity, and a peace that simply grips you. It's my favorite of all of Paul's letters. And do you know what Paul says in it? Paul says, forgetting those things. Forget. Corrie Tin Boom, when she was here last week, of the Nazis and the Gestapo against her in Germany. How she could tear up and throw away the list of things that even some people who call themselves Christians had done against her. 
And this is the secret. If you cannot forgive, you will not be forgiven. Jesus Christ said that. And if you ever expect to get into heaven, you better draw up a long list of all the things that people have done against you and forget it. Forget it. Forgive it and forget it. For the past year, it's been my privilege to work as a chaplain at Appalachian Hall over in Asheville. And one of the biggest single factors in mental and emotional distress has to do with painful memories. Not simply memories that occurred back in early childhood of some tragedy, but bitterness and regret and remorse over a husband or a wife who had done us wrong. Heartache that comes over a father who did not include me in his will with as much money as he did others. Or of a mother who made me do this or that. And the psychiatrists have to deal with these painful memories, trying to get people to forget them. So what Paul says is great and good advice from a mental health standpoint. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward, he pressed forward with hope toward that which lay ahead. The metaphor which Paul uses here is an athletic metaphor. I think Paul might have been tempted as I was to watch a football game instead of work on his sermon. He was always talking about athletic metaphors. He would be speaking of the Olympic Games. And the metaphor he uses here is of a runner who is pressing with every fiber of his being to break the tape and win the prize. Well, Paul says, forget what is behind. Press with everything you've got toward the goal. That's what I'm doing. Now, that's what God means for us to do with this precious gift of time and of life to press toward the future. I am always amazed at quarterbacks. They have to be able to forget thousands of plays and to think only of one play that might work. They have 25 seconds from the time that headlinesman blows his whistle and starts his stopwatch. When he blows the whistle, the ball is dead. The stopwatch is started and he has 25 seconds to form a huddle call a play, line up on the line of scrimmage and get that ball in motion or else the whistle blows again and he's penalized five yards for delay of the ball game. Well now, that teaches us a lesson. He has to single out his purpose. He knows where his goal is. It's nothing against a man to be, ta be tackled running toward the goal that he's headed toward. But it's stupid if a man gets tackled running toward his own in our Christian life, we may make mistakes and failures, but we can get up and we can keep moving. We can call a play, and if that one does not work, we can single out another play and call it. And in order to do this, we must be selective, and we have to forget certain things. The psalmist did not have the privilege of knowing what Paul knew. The psalmist did not know that Messiah had risen from the dead or would rise from the dead. He had a vague hope 
He put it into these words, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the works of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. And he looked forward to God doing that. But what Paul could look forward to was even more. He looked forward to knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, because that's involved in discipleship. He looked forward in knowing him in the power of his resurrection. Now this brings life to a grand climax, this tale which is told that God has a purpose for me. He had a purpose for Catherine Bryson. He has a purpose for this psalmist. He had a purpose for St. Paul. He has a purpose for each one of us. And so we can look forward with confidence toward the future and hope that is there. One of my favorite sports stories is, is about Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, in one of the great World Series ball games, it was between the Chicago, Yankee, uh, the Chicago Cubs and the New York Yankees. Babe, of course, played for the New York Yankees, and the first two games had been played in New York, and the Yankees had won both of those games. And then they moved to Chicago. And when the opening game came in Chicago, at one point in the ball game, the score stood four and four. And Babe Ruth came up to bat. There had been one out. And he was something of a showman. He had knocked a home run earlier in that game. And it was considered very unlikely in those days that a man would knock two home runs in one World Series game. That's quite an achievement. And so the pitcher really wasn't too much worried about Babe Ruth. He was the greatest pitcher Chicago had and one of the greatest pitchers in baseball. And so he put one over the plate that was a real sizzler, a fast one right over the plate. And the umpire called strike, of course, and Babe Ruth imitated the umpire, and he put up his fingers, strike one. And uh, this infuriated the pitcher. And so the pitcher put another one over the plate as hard as he could, and Babe Ruth cockily called strike two, you know. And then he put a, a ball over, and then he put another ball over, and the count was 2-2, two, two, and the moment of truth was coming. And so Babe Ruth took his baseball bat and pounded it on the plate, and he walked around the home plate, and he picked up dirt and rubbed it on his hands, and he spit on his hands and wiped them on his trousers, and then he pointed to the center field fence motioning to the fence he intended to knock the ball over. And do you know what happened? The pitcher put the ball over home plate and Babe Ruth knocked it clear out of the park right over the center field fence just as he had pointed to and the crowd went wild. After the game was over, a reporter came to Babe Ruth and said, what would have happened if you hadn't knocked that ball over the fence like you said you were going to do? And Babe said the thought never occurred to him. He knew he was going to do it. Well, now listen. That hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That hope is that you will live forever in him and that all your sins will be forgiven and are forgiven in him when you embrace him as Lord and Savior of your life. 
and you can point cockily toward death and be sure of one thing, that when death comes your way, you can lay into it and you can put it over the center field fence and clear out of the park, not because it's your power that does it, but because your Savior, Jesus Christ, is in you and gives you the power of his resurrection. This happens to us in the gift of time that takes us to eternity. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, as we stand at the gate of a brand new year, Help us with confidence to reach out and take hold of thy hand and walk without fear into the days and weeks that lie ahead of us, determined that we shall forgive and forget, determined that we shall look forward to that blessed hope which is ours, determined that we shall glorify thee with the moment in time thou hast given unto us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be in the Bible.